0: Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Tuesday, April 20th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Will this decade be another roaring 20s? A social epidemiologist and a Nobel Prize winning economist weigh in. How many T-Rexes roamed the land throughout their time on Earth? A team of paleontologists did the math. And scientists have created the whitest paint ever, which could make a sizable difference in the climate crisis. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Ever since New Year's Eve heading into 2020, people have been comparing this new decade to the 1920s. Comparison that felt particularly grim and short-sighted once the optimism of a burgeoning era was burst by the harsh reality of the pandemic. But even after we settled into the pandemic, some were quick to point out that the Roaring Twenties emerged after a period of war and its own pandemic, the 1918 influenza. So once the vaccines are distributed, the variants tamps down, and life returns to some semblance of normality, will we be looking at another bout of high markets and lavish living? First, I have to say personally that I think one reason people keep clinging on to this idea, apart from all the ways that the 20s have been mythologized through rose-colored glasses and books and movies over the years, is that it's been a while since we've had a decade we can actually refer to with an agreed-upon name. You know, the aughts, the 2010s, we weren't really sure what to call them as we lived through them, and even now they stay on our tongues a bit awkwardly. Nothing like the 50s, the 70s, the 90s. Some people have even argued that if generation-on-generation baiting has gotten worse, it's in part because we don't have easily nameable decades that we can push identities onto, so instead we do the same with entire generations. So what then will the identity and leading cultural markers of the 2020s be? Social epidemiologist and Yale professor Dr. Nicholas Christakis believes we will see something like the Roaring Twenties as people make up for lost time with enthusiastic social interaction. Speaking to The Guardian at the end of last year about his book Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live, Christakis explained that while pandemics and epidemics are new to us, they're not new to humans throughout history. And we can look back on epidemics of the past for a reliable pattern of what may be to come. Quoting Christakis in The Guardian, During epidemics, you get increases in religiosity, people becoming more abstentious, they save money, they get risk-averse, and we're seeing all of that now, just as we have for hundreds of years during epidemics, said Christakis. As well, economies of ancient civilizations collapsed in times of disease. Many people seem to think it's the actions of our government that are causing the economy to slow. That's false, he said. It's the virus that's causing the economy to slow, because economies collapsed even in ancient times when plagues happened, even when there was no government saying close the schools and close the restaurants, end quote. He believes all of that will reverse once the pandemic has truly ended. We'll enter a time of, quoting The Guardian, experiences pined for in isolation, packed stadiums, crowded nightclubs, and flourishing arts, sexual licentiousness, liberal spending, and a reverse of religiosity, end quote. Though, notably, Christakis doesn't think this will happen until 2024. This prediction came from just at the very beginning of vaccines being approved, so perhaps he's moved up the timing by now, but he based that on the time needed to distribute the vaccine and for society to recover from, quote, socioeconomic devastation. On the one hand, I agree, because even though the US is doing pretty great on vaccine distribution lately, much of the world has been left in the lurch, so getting everyone vaccinated is going to end up taking quite some time. But on the other hand, we're already starting to see a huge resurgence in spending, especially in travel and recreational activities, although on the third hand, we may be too quickly overlooking the psychological trauma this time has caused people. Some of us are eager to return to activities right now, in theory, as we book tickets and make plans, but that might slow again as some people realize they're not actually ready for as much as they thought. So maybe a slow build-up to a sort of exuberant, artistic, devil-may-care, roaring 20s-esque revelry is right on the money after all. But that's Christaki's social epidemiological opinion. Economist, Nobel laureate, and also Yale professor, Robert Schiller, recently weighed in with his take on the whole roaring 20s redux in the New York Times. He starts by pointing out that this past decade, ending in March of 2021, was pretty incredible for the stock market. The total return for the monthly inflation-corrected S&P 500, he calculates, averaged 12% annually, and he notes that the real value of an investment tripled during that time. But in the 1920s, the stock market was even more incredible. Quote, It was the biggest bull stock market in US history when you factor in inflation. I calculate that the real total return for the Standard & Poor's Composite Index and S&P 500 predecessor, including dividends from September 1919 to September 1929, averaged 20% a year. That implies a six-fold increase in real value over the decade. It didn't end well, however, including inflation, the index crashed 77% from September 1929 to June 1932, end quote. And he points out that with just a few exceptions, pretty much no one saw the huge crash coming. Especially more inexperienced folks who bought into the market for the first time, something we're seeing happen again right now as people get encouraged by others on social media to buy shares for the first time. More ominously, if we're looking for comparisons that would signal a coming crash on the same level as in 1929, part of this explosion of rookies, as well as the brazenness of the more experienced, was buoyed by technological innovations and new forms of media. Sound familiar? Quoting again, In 1923, the Translux company came out with the Movie Ticker, a large illuminated screen showing rapidly changing stock prices. For the first time, a crowd at a retail brokerage could watch together as a facsimile of the stock ticker tape whizzed by in bright light. And they heard about the stock market on the radio, the hot new technology of that era. The world entered homes electronically, giving people an immediate sense of the possibility of new technologies and access to a global narrative about financial success, end quote. But, Schiller notes, with all of that new information coming in, one element was crucially lacking— Skeptical Scrutiny. It was all excitement and the fun of the game, not deeper explanations of the complex world of the stock market and the risks one may be facing. Shortly before the crash, this started changing. Newspapers started talking more about details and warning signs traders should be paying more attention to. And of course, with the way that the market works, the mere fact that major newspapers were hinting at something to worry about meant people worried, and that got reflected in the market. And it kept ramping up, more and more articles, posting warnings, and even a hit song by Eddie Cantor about losing money in the stocks, something that feels eerily like the 1920s equivalent of meme stocks. In the months leading up to the October crash, this all made people start thinking there could be a crash and the self-fulfilling prophecy of the stock market might have helped lead to it. Of course, no one thought it would be as bad as it was. Quoting once more, are there similarities today? Certainly. The current widespread fascination with the rising market, accompanied by recent concern about a possible downward spiral and strained stock market valuations, echo those of a 100 years ago. That said, there's no particular reason to expect a market collapse that would be as bad as the 1929 crash, and the government and the Fed have shown themselves to be far more adept in staving off prolonged recessions than their predecessors but we shouldn't be surprised if uncomfortable feelings about the market grow to unmanageable proportions, leading eventually to a major stock market decline, end quote. So especially with the protections put in place throughout the 20th century after the Great Depression and hindsight being what it is, perhaps we'll see some hints of the roaring 20s, but be able to stave off some of the worst aspects of the decade. So maybe less of a roar and more a measured rumble. So last week, during the wave of pterosaur news, I mentioned how one reason we don't know too much about pterosaurs is because their super delicate bones that allowed them to fly through the air don't stay preserved as fossils too well, so the fossil record on them is pretty slim. But what's the fossil record of their dinosaur cousins like? Well, fortunately, some paleontologists just last week published a new study calculating just how many Tyrannosaurus rex lived on Earth in totality, and therefore how rare their fossils are. And that number, for the over 2 million years that T. rexes roamed the planet, the team estimates there were, in totality, over 2.5 billion of them. Or as Christopher Mims put it on Twitter, quote, More than enough to eat us all. End quote. The team, led by Charles Marshall at the University of California at Berkeley, used Dameth's Law to reach this estimate. Dameth's Law is a method used by ecologists that says that the population density of a species decreases as body mass increases. So one might suppose there would have been more of the smaller species of pterosaurs, like the monkey dactyl, than there were huge T-Rexes. Quoting Nature, The team used its estimates of the total range of T. rex across modern North America, combined with estimates of the dinosaur's body mass, to calculate that at any one time, around 20,000 T. rex would have been alive on the planet. That translates to around 3,800 T. rex in an area the size of California, or just two T. rex patrolling Washington, D.C., Calculating that T. rex survived for about 127,000 generations before becoming extinct, the researchers came up with a figure of 2.5 billion individuals over the species' entire existence. Only 32 adult T. rex have been discovered as fossils, so the fossil record accounts for just one in about every 80 million T. rex. This means that the chances of being fossilized, even for one of the largest ever carnivores, were vanishingly small. These numbers suggest that fossils in general are exceedingly rare and hint that many species that were much less widespread than T. rex were probably never preserved, says Marshall, who adds, the fossil record is our only direct knowledge of these completely unimaginable past histories of our planet, end quote. Which makes you both super grateful for what we have and super curious about what else might have been around back then that we could never even dream of. Researchers at Purdue University have developed an ultra-white paint that is the whitest of any currently available and able to reflect 98.1% of sunlight. That's an improvement on their own record of a previous white paint they developed in 2020 that can reflect 95.5% of sunlight. Now, why does all this reflectability matter? What if you still prefer eggshell or water chestnut varieties of white paint, no matter what these scientists say? Well, it turns out it matters quite a bit when it comes to climate change. One energy-saving method that's been in use for a while in some major cities like in New York and in California is painting so-called cool roofs, which are roofs painted white. It's a pretty simple concept on the surface, you know, white reflects light, black absorbs it, so light-colored roofs reflect the sunlight. The BBC notes that the exact benefits are still being investigated conclusively, but that initial studies do point to white roofs creating lower ambient temperatures, reducing energy demands, and even reducing the amount of water used for irrigation, because when the temperature is lower, there's less demand for water for landscaping. Lead researcher Professor Xiu-Lin Ruan told the BBC, quote, Commercially available white paints reflect between 80% and 90% of sunlight. It's a big deal because every 1% of reflectance you get translates to 10 watts per meter squared less heat from the sun. So if you were to use our paint to cover a roof area of about 1,000 square feet or 93 square meters, we estimate you could get a cooling power of 10 kilowatts. That's more powerful than the central air conditioners used by most houses, he said. And that's a great comparison, because while it might seem like we need to install more central air conditioners in places that don't usually use them as our summers grow longer and hotter, air conditioners are really one of the worst things that we could install energy-wise. Finding solutions like reflective surfaces are much more sustainable all around and plenty effective. Ruan cops that the paint wouldn't suffice on its own on a really hot day, but on less hot days, his team says even super hot places like Reno or Phoenix could save up to 80% on air conditioning costs. But how did Ruan's team develop this ultra-white paint? Quoting Earther, Ron said that efforts to develop the whitest paint possible that could also act as cooling agents stretch back to the 1970s. Ron's team alone has been working on how to get white paints even whiter for around seven years now, hammering out methods of adding reflectant materials to the paint to help it beat back the sun. This successfully white paint incorporates high concentrations of barium sulfate, a chemical compound that's used to make white cosmetics and photo paper, with different sized particles scattered throughout the paint. The sunlight has different colors because it has different wavelengths, Ron explained. We need different particle sizes to scatter each wavelength, end quote. It's still not perfect, though, and I don't mean because it's only 98.1% effective and not 100. It comes down to the more practical side of implementing these roofs. Hashim Akbari, a professor of building civil and environmental engineering at Concordia University, shared some of the practical concerns with Earther, quote, Akvari pointed out that regular wear and tear on reflective roofs and walls can impact the reflectivity percentages measured in a lab setting. Soot and dust tend to decrease the reflectivity of the surface, he said. If they start with super-duper 95% reflectivity, the pollutants from the air, the droplets, soot could collect on the surface and they decrease the reflectance, end quote. But that doesn't mean don't do it. Definitely replace asphalt roofs with more reflective ones when you can, even if they're just 80% reflective and not the 98% ultra-white one, which is not available commercially yet, but the Purdue team hopes it will be depending on what company ends up manufacturing it. Because anything helps right now, and the more they're installed, the more we'll be able to identify and troubleshoot any issues. So the Season 2 trailer for Ted Lasso just dropped right before I started recording, and, you know, I'm sure this drop was planned for months, given the big Apple event today, but honestly, I would also not be shocked if they rushed the release of the trailer, given the fact that the most dominating global sports news right now is about football team owners selfishly acting without regard for the community and spirit behind their teams. Kind of the whole plot of the first season of Ted Lasso. And speaking of if you missed it yesterday, I had on Tech Meme Ride Home host Brian McCullough to talk about the big Super League news. And I'll just say, it really is something that feels bigger than just soccer, so give that conversation a listen if you didn't already. And also, Ted Lasso is more than just a show about soccer. So many people will tell you that at first they didn't give it a chance because they thought it was just a sports show. It is, but it's also really not. It's a fantastic show presenting healthy portrayals of masculinity and focusing on the power and importance of kindness. Season 2 drops July 23rd, so plenty of time to catch up on Season 1 if you want to. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.